the National Archives podcast series, Writer of the Month, My History, A Memoir of Growing Up, presented by Antonia Fraser. This talk was recorded on the 28th of January 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. So the interviewer uh, is going to take three, three parts. Start off with, I want to talk to Antonia about her life as a historian, then her life in general, and finally, um, her sort of habits and life as a writer. Um, so to start off with, tell us about your memoir. Why did you decide to write a memoir indeed? It began in my mind that I wanted to write about North Oxford. Um, I was brought up in North Oxford. My father was a don at Christchurch. He was invalided out of the army. Um, therefore, unlike the fathers of most of my friends, um, he was there and we were there at Chadlington Road. And I was sent to the Dragon School uh, next door. And I'm very excited to report that, that there are a few ODs present. Perhaps we'll hear from them later. <laughs> um, and um, we had extraordinary lives, wartime lives. But of course, children don't think if only it was peace. You know, they take things for granted. And I began by thinking, and my father being a Don, knew all the Dons who were around and the Don's wives, um, very important. And, and my friends mainly had dons as parents, the day, day children. Um, and I began thinking that would be fun to do. And then it got, and then I also thought I would like to describe how I came to find uh, history, the great pleasure in life. And because I feel very strongly about this, and every time history is removed from any syllabus, I feel not only indignant but also sad for the people who won't know about history. And gradually, the two books came together in my mind. I mean, I sort of think about them while I was writing other things. And I decided to start off and do it that way and try to do both together. And, uh, well, we're in no doubt of your uh, passion for history with the uh, nine best-selling books to your name. Um, but where do you think your love of the past really began? Well, it's, a, it's difficult, isn't it? Because um, I put it down to being given our island story, which, by the way, has now got a rather sort of old-fashioned and unfashionable reputation. Don't believe it. If you have children, grandchildren, um, some children of a young friend of mine were read our island story by her as a result of reading my book, and they absolutely loved it. And I was a precocious reader, because my mother, very intelligent woman, um, didn't work when she was first married. She quickly started because she couldn't bear not doing anything. Um, and she was later very well known as Elizabeth Longford, but in those days she was Elizabeth Packham. And she sort of had to do something, and she taught me to read. And somehow, uh, partly I was frightened to disobey, so I just read. And I was given our island story for my uh, when I Christmas when I was four and a half and uh, and I read it and I know it sounds extraordinary but of course we're all going to read sometime and if you have a clever person concentrating probably we could learn to read at three you know and I still have the copy and it says Antonio Pagnum Christmas 1936 so the other day um, a couple of years ago when I realized what it had started in my life I had it rebound in magnificent leather, so there it is. <laughs> well, and I understand that your mother also banned Enid Blyton 
So you were, you were raised on a much more wholesome diet than a lot it, of the rest of us. It's so interesting that, isn't it? My, my, my mother definitely banned Enid Blyton. What is odd is that I didn't go and jolly well read Enid Blyton because I was quite, you know, precocious readers are subversive. And I definitely remember a bit later, not at four and a half, but I remember with my cousin and best friend, Henrietta Lamb, my father's sister, daughter, daughter of the painter Henry Lamb. And I remember going into what was called the spare room, which was freezing cold. Nobody ever came to stay, ever. Anyway, <laughs> there was no heating. And we found this book, it was great excitement, um, called Married Love by Murray Stokes, <laughs> which had been put on the bottom row of the books in the spare room on the assumption that we'd never find it. Of course, we found it immediately. We completely missed the point. We were looking for sort of love. It seemed to be about very odd things indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that book, um, I think it's long ago vanished, but I suppose now, um, you know, you read articles about Mary Stokes and all of that, but it is quite a funny memory. Um, but Enid Blyton didn't sound so exciting. And then I, I then went and banned it from my children. I still don't quite know why. Of course, my children, um, they were at um, uh, Lady Eden's and then St. Paul's up the road. Of course they read Enid Blyton. They had a very clever friend, just as clever, called Jane Bonham Carter. And Jane sort of gave them the books. And one day I opened the wardrobe and the books for my children all came tumbling out. <laughs> And has it done them any harm, do you think? No, absolutely okay. none. But meanwhile, aged, th aged four, you were reading Our Island Story. And then yeah. in, in the book, you also talk about reading uh, Gibbons's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And you said that this was a really uh, fantastic book. Well, I, uh, I was 14. And again, you have to think yourself into circumstances where uh, when I was, I was 14, just after the end of the war, and no books were obviously sort of printed in the war. Printing was for different things. There was no paper that was for different things. So people read um, classics, and even classics in sort of leather, because there weren't really paperbacks, uh, in a much more nonchalant way. You know, what would be rather eccentric now. It wasn't really, and I just took it out of the bookshelf. And once again, I thought, hey, this is terrific. <laughs> what was it about Gibbons's work that really captured your imagination, do you think? Well, it, it, it was the excitement of narrative and coupled with the fact this really happened, you know. And that was our, our island story. I immediately thought, this is more interesting than Black Beauty, that great book, yeah. because it's real. Whereas my mother had spent a lot of time explaining to me as I howled. Do you remember the moment when Ginger passes? She kept a lot of, you know, with her tongue hanging out. Oh, still, I'm not sure I can refer to it. But she kept, spent a lot of time explaining to me that, that beauty wasn't real, so that beauty suffered. It wasn't really suffering. Whereas, of course, in our island story, when Mary Queen of Scots suffered, she suffered. Yeah. But I sort of preferred reality. Um, and another thing that you mention in your book is your absolute love of castles. And I wondered if you had a favourite and you could uh, sort of sell it to our audience. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, anyone here know Bojum Castle? You need to, yes. Yes, um, it, 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 we lived quite near Bodum Castle uh, um, and we used to go over to it and continue to do so after the war. Um, in fact, I went, I, I, I went for New Year, uh, now the house where my parents lived is now lived in by my younger brother and was 
rented by my daughter, and I insisted on going over to Bodium because it's that important to me with the lake. Um, and of course, Bodium is a perfect castle because there it is exactly as it was, except it was sort of renovated by Lord Curzon who bought it so that it's not crumbly and dangerous, but it looks exactly the same. I mean, you wouldn't know it had been renovated unless you were a sort of architect. So if anybody's near there, it's on the borders, really, of Kent and Sussex, isn't it? Um, strong recommend. <laughs> I used to imagine myself leaning out of the tower with my long plaits, which I didn't have my long plaits. <laughs> what, what you learned from reading the book is that Antonia did a lot of imagining. Uh, there was um, there's one episode where you describe how there's a rumour swirling around that uh, you and your siblings um, were, were not really your parents' children at all. Well, I tell you what this was about. Um, in the election of 1945, when my father stood as Labour candidate for Oxford, he didn't get in. Um, my parents already had six children. They would go on to have another two. They had six children. That was so unusual for those times. You know, people who had large families were generally... And by the way, my mother wasn't even a Catholic at that point. She just liked children. So unusual that a rumor was started so that people wouldn't um, favor my father for having all these children. A rumor was started that we were adopted, and, and my parents were frightfully angry. And we children were sort of gleeful, and it was sort of bags to be adopted. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, Antonia talks about how she imagined that she was descended from royalty, and maybe that's why you were sort of from an early age, sort of fascinated by uh, I think monarchy. if I was descended from royalty, it wasn't sort of to do with uh, the existing royal family, although we all admired King George VI because he was so brave in the war, you know, went among the ruins. And, and right. Queen Elizabeth, later the Queen Mother, you know, all the images in the papers, she'd walk among bomb sites and meet survivors, and she was always in sort of pale blue crepe, floaty crepe, and no dust or damage ever touched her, which was very actually heartening. You know, you felt there was this magic creature. <laughs> um, so I didn't think I was descended from them. I thought I was descended from some medieval queen. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you, you do write about uh, Mary, Queen of Scots in one of your books, and then Marie Antoinette in uh, one mm. of the others. And I wondered uh, why particularly you've been drawn to these women. Um, uh, I was drawn to Mary Queen of Scots from a very early age in our island story. In fact, in my book, I include one of the pictures. I think it's almost the last picture um, in the book, one of the pictures that I used to gaze at reverently. Well, it is the most thrilling story. I mean, it's a terrible story, but it's very exciting. I mean, you couldn't make up a more exciting story. I mean, there'd be no point writing a historical novel about Mary Queen of Scots because the reality would always be more thrilling. And she also had child ladies-in-waiting when she was a child, the four Murrays. And I imagined there was a fifth Murray, and she was called Antonia. <laughs> <laughs> um, before we came on stage, you mentioned that you'd uh, done some research for your book on the gunpowder plot that at um, the National Archives or at the Public Record Office as it uh, once was when yes. it was based in Chancery Lane. Um, perhaps you can tell us a bit about your research. Yes, I, um, uh, there, there, there are some key documents, including the confession of Guy Fawkes after torture. Um, that's now here, is yes, it? Yes, it is. Yes. In fact, I, I remember coming to see it again here 
when I was working, the book was published in 96, so the early 90s, it must have been still in Chancery Lane. I mean, the point was the document, and it was in the public, in the National Archives. And you see the degeneration of his signature. He signed Guido, by the way, because he'd lived abroad. And the last Guido is trembling because he's been tortured so much. And it really, to be honest, that the picture, the use of the signature as an illustration, says more than words could ever do. Um, and obviously you've written these nine uh, fantastically popular books. And I wondered, is there one book that you're particularly proud of or happy to have written? Well, I think, you, you, you know, you, you, uh, um, in a way, you, you go for the one. I, I wrote a book called The Weaker Vessel um, about women in 17th century England. And it didn't do very well here. It was rather before its time. Um, it's since become, I think, a book that people like very much. I get lots of letters and, you know, women's studies. But women's studies at university didn't exist then. Um, it did frightfully well in the States, where women's studies were rather ahead. And I did do something that hadn't been done before and sort of took um, the lives of all the women and um, read their diaries and hunted out diaries by women who weren't well known. And I enjoyed doing that very much. So I'm very proud of that. Well, let's stick with this theme of women, <coughs> um, sort of moving on to talking a bit about uh, your biography. Um, in one of the things that you explore in uh, my, my story is um, the fact that you were uh, one of the, well, you were a sort of woman in, in Oxford as a student, and you were in a college where Obviously, colleges, Oxford colleges, weren't mixed at that yeah. time, so you were subject to all of these uh, sort of restrictions on when men could be in your accommodation. You had to be back by 10 p.m. at night, or yeah. had to sneak out and then pretend you were coming in in the morning, uh, sort of early from mass when you'd been yeah. elsewhere. Um, what was it like to be a minority in a minority? Well, again, you see, you've got to. Uh, uh, um, we we we'd all. I mean, I was an oddity at having been at a boys' school, the Dragon School, and I had four brothers and three sisters. So, I, uh, I mean, once you're at the Dragon School, you have, you never have any feeling that girls are less clever than boys. You know, that girls are quite as clever as boys if they are. You know, i.e., the top boy in upper one might be a boy, but it could equally be a girl. So, I didn't have any of those complexes, but. Um, you were used to being in girls' boarding schools, used to there being fewer girls. And so while I found the restrictions very irritating, I didn't sort of, I, I, it seemed at the same time natural and just needed to be circumvented. Yeah. You, know. <laughs> um, you also talk about how uh, you recall the moment when you found out your the results of your degree and you called your father to say, Oh, I'm sorry, Dad. I didn't. I didn't get get the first after all. And he said, "Well, thank goodness. You know, no one would have wanted to marry you if you'd got a first." Yes. Um, but I thought that was interesting. So you were born into a sort of, in a way, a very different world than the kind of one that exists today. In yes, it was a very odd. Uh, uh, considering my mother uh, was at university, you know, uh, um, wasn't at all. Uh, he said it. I mean, don't forget my father went on to be Lord Longford, famous for helping, you know, people in trouble and need, prisoners and others. Um, he was a natural sort of succorer. I think he said the nicest thing he could possibly say um, 
you know, he wanted to cheer me. Actually, um, I'd never expected to get a purse for the quite simple reason I hadn't done enough work, <laughs> and I knew what work was, and I knew I hadn't done it. Um, and I was really afraid of disappointing him, because as an academic, including after the Labour government fell, he came back and was two or one or two years teaching at Oxford while I was there. Um, I felt I'd let him down, you know, and it was so funny because then he said, um, oh, well, you'd never have got married. And about 10 years later, I asked my first husband, Hugh Fraser, um, would you have married me if I got a first? He said, but I thought you did get a first. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody obviously. So <laughs> but then uh, you also talk about how your first job was with the publisher, George Weidenfeld. Yes. And... Um, and how one of the key things that he was looking for in the, an employee at the time was that it would be a pretty girl. Mm. No, no, it wasn't that. He looked for everything. You know, he didn't... To, to George, every girl was a pretty girl. Every girl was intelligent. Every girl was a tremendous sort of bolster up. I mean, there were in fact people working for him who weren't all that pretty. And, I wasn't so fantastically pretty myself, but George made you feel you were marvellous, yeah. really. And, um, you know, you made you feel you, you could do it, and, you were, and that was an extraordinary gift as an employer. Another thing that I noticed in the book, um, you, after you left the Dragon School, you moved to a girls-only boarding school, is that correct? Godolphin was probably number two, and I went there so I could get a scholarship. Um, I wanted to see my name on the board, like the boys, you see. Uh -huh. And, and um, when I went there, it was really having you know, always a girl at the Dragon School. When I went to, I suddenly found at Godolphin that I was a sort of boy. I didn't really fit in. You said it was like being Mowgli in, in like the jungle. When, you know when Mowgli's first found the little boy? He's a wolf. He thinks he's a wolf. He behaves like a wolf. Because, and I somehow, I was in a high form because the Dragon was a terrific education. But I wasn't really very grown up in other ways, so I was uh, unhappy. But then after two years, I left, not my own volition. Um, um, my mother became a Catholic, as well as my father, and I was sent to St. Mary's Ascot, where a convent. Um, and I was extremely happy. I loved it. I loved the excitement of nuns, you know. Sort of. <laughs> in those days, it's now just a school, but in those days it was nuns and you know, gothic sort of black uniform and jangling rosaries and white headbands and veils. I loved all of that. Yeah, and um, one of the things you seem particularly enthusiastic about in the book was uh, your, at the convent was uh, your history teacher, Mother Ignatius. Mother Mercedes. Oh, Mother, no, Mercedes. Ma Mother Ignatius was the headmistress, yes. Mother Mercedes was just one of those born teachers. It's very interesting. The, the, about 10 years ago, there was a series where people spoke on television about the teacher who'd, got, who'd sort of influenced them. A lot of well-known people did it. And then there was a lot of conversation. And um, my late husband, Harold Pinter, was at school in Hackney where he lived. And he had one teacher who sort of picked him out somehow. You know, he came from a home without books and encouraged him to love drama and poetry. And great friend of mine, Roy Strong, came from roughly the same um, area, slightly more middle-class background, but he had a teacher. And Mother Mercedes was the one, because she loved history, she wasn't at all stuffy, but she was terribly enthusiastic. 
you know, my enthusiasm meshed with hers, and I co-dedicate um, the book to her for sparing me on. Although, <laughs> alas, she's long gone to heaven, we assume, um, and, and to my eldest brother. <laughs> Um, so, um, what did Mother Mercedes teach you about what part of history did she? Well, bring we went. To life? We did a lot of European history, um, and um, she had a passion for the Empress Maria Theresa, who was the mother of Marie Antoinette. She incidentally had fifteen children, sixteen children. Marie Antoinette was the fifteenth. And when I did my own book on Marie Antoinette, I realised that she'd been a nightmare mother, endlessly <laughs> writing to poor Marie Antoinette, age fourteen, saying. Literally, why haven't you started a baby? Don't you know what to do? Poor Marie Antoinette didn't know what to do, and nor did her husband, Louis XVI. <laughs> These terrible letters, and she used to have to report the state of the month. You know, yep. can you imagine writing to your mother in Austria month after month? Uh, um, but even when I was writing all of this, this immensely bossy, very brave empress, I felt the ghost of Mother Mercedes. Did Mother Mercedes sort of find, find out about your, your fame and fortune in the history books? Did, were you ever in touch with her um, afterwards? Well, I, yes, I remained in touch. And my, um, my, uh, my third daughter, Natasha, actually went to St Mary's Ascot. Uh, she was dead then, but her sister, Mother Perpetua, became Reverend Mother. So she knew of my uh, fame. And, um, and the nuns, you know, uh, um, I was asked back to opened the senior library last year. I've had three, four grandchildren there, have one. And um, I must say, when they unveiled the plot, um, I thought if only Mother Mercedes could see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's some really very entertaining sections in the book about life at the convent school. And um, one of my favourites was uh, where Antonia describes, I guess, what would now be described as a... Um, I suppose, a career chat with uh, one of the teachers. Um, I wondered whether you could tell the audience a little bit about how your um, career aspirations differed from the average girl and what the head teacher did about it. Well, it was, um, you didn't outwit nuns, ever. And, and um, it, it, I mean, I'll just tell you, and I'll tell you that story, but to show the measure of Mother Ignatius, I was passionate to win the History Prize. and. I promised God, you know, if you do this, I'll do that, and all those promises. And then Mother Ignatius got up and said, the history prize goes to Antonia Packenham. And she said, no one else went in for the history prize at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was, you know, you didn't get... And, and anyway, um, we, we, we'd have sort of... The word career wasn't really used as such, which is just as well. But we did sort of hands up what we were going to do when we left. And um, I was the only person who was going to university, actually, because my mother had. But that wasn't discussed. And awful lot put up their hands getting married and having children. Some put up their hands to having going to be a nun. Uh, and one of them, a close friend of mine, did become a nun. Um, and I thought, I know what I'll say. Now, the Daily Express was banned. I have no idea why it was banned, um, but it was banned. So I said, I'm going to be a journalist on the Daily Express. I mean, <laughs> and then all my friends went, cool, you know, cool. And um, so there was sort of silence, but not wise, not wise to count on silence among nuns. So the next announcement about the 
free period on Saturday morning. Mother Ignatius said, now you're all going to have a wonderful free period. You can go roaming around the grounds, which was absolutely lovely, or do what you like, or, uh, you know, and uh, except Antonia. Antonia is going to be a journalist on the Daily Express. So she is going to have typing lessons every Saturday morning <laughs> with Sister Hilary, who wasn't very sympathetic. She was the hockey mistress. And she will sit and do a postal course on typing, and Sister Hilary will watch her. And I had to sit in the gym with an iron, uh, 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 sort of iron band so I couldn't see my hands. And I learned to touch type very, very fast. It's the most useful thing that I could possibly have learned. And a moment, you know, anything new like a computer, there would be a problem. And I, can, I can sort of, uh, um, and I was so cross, just shows you. <laughs> um, as well as describing in your book uh, your, your time at these various different schools, you also um, talk about how um, alongside castles, Churchill was... Uh, uh, one of your big well, loves is probably the wrong word, but kind of heroes of the time. Maybe you could tell us a bit about yes, that. Yes, and I think my contemporaries here will um, agree. You see, Churchill, I was seven when the war uh, started, and then Churchill comes to power in 1940. And his broadcasts, we were allowed to stay up for them. Always, of course, we're talking entirely about radio or wireless, as we called it, um, was so important, absolutely vital. Um, you know, I could almost not quite sort of recreate them. It was so important to us. And so I immediately got very interested in Churchill and um, came like a sort of subject in my mind and read everything about it. And he had a birthday. He was born, I think, on November the 30th. And I think he was born in 74 from memory, but um, I mean, 1874. Anyway, there was a birthday. And... I was aware of that, so I wrote him a poem, as one does, and sent it to da 10 Downing Street. I thought it was pretty good. I knew he'd like it. It was all about sort of courage and prisoners setting themselves free and lots of things like that. And the morning after the birthday, my mother said at breakfast, um, oh, by the way, you were thanked on the, well, on the wireless last night, Mr. Churchill, Ch thank you. It just shows sort of children's kind of, it's not exactly arrogance, but they're, they're unreal. I believed her. I thought Mr. Churchill had actually said, and I, I wish to thank you. <laughs> and of course, what he actually, what they said, not him, said, Mr. Churchill wishes to thank all those who sent handkerchiefs, scars, teddy bears, socks, <laughs> letters, essays, and poems. <laughs> wow. But I think I was right. I mean, when I went on, uh, uh, really did sort of study, I think Churchill was not perfect. Um, very, very few perfect people, and I don't think they were politicians. Of course, um, his attitude towards India is horrifying to us to read now. He wasn't perfect, but he was a great man, and he had courage, and I think without him, we might have given in. It's arguable that we would have given in in May 1940. Mm -hmm. you know. yeah. Thank you. Um, so we've got maybe f five more minutes more of the questions from me before the floor's open to you. Can I just tell you a historical thing? Oh, yes, do. Um, this is do. the year of Gallipoli, which, of course, not Churchill was young, but blamed for Gallipoli, the failure of the campaign. My grandfather, Thomas Earl of Longford, died at Gallipoli, brigadier leading his men. Um, and it was a tremendous tragedy, leaving six young children, one of whom was my father.
my grandmother, Mary Julia Longford, in the 20s, wouldn't be in the same room as Mrs. Churchill. That, that just shows you, you know, my hero was her. Um, now we're going to have probably a, for his descendants a Gallipoli family party. And my grandchildren, if you're still with me, um, Ruby, Christabel, Alice, and X, who will be born in February, are descended both from Brigadier Tom, Earl of Longford, and from Winston Churchill, because my son married Clemmy Hambro, who was Churchill's great-granddaughter, daughter of Lady Soames, who, I mean, granddaughter of Lady Soames, who just died. So these little nippers are going to be the little reconciliation angels. Marrying of the <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Um, thank you very much. Um, so I just wanted to ask you some questions about mm. um, getting into writing. When did you know, do you think, that you were going to be writing stories for a living? I don't know about a living. I just always wrote. Um, people often ask me, when did you decide to be a writer? Never. I just was a writer. You, you know, I, uh, my mother was very encouraging, um, kept perhaps a little too much of it. <laughs> um, that's what I always did. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I couldn't draw. My drawing was not good. And um, although I came to love music, I didn't have a very good voice, and my piano playing was not um, up to scratch, particularly at St Mary's Astrid, where the nuns were wonderfully musical. I mean, I did it. But, but I mean, what I could always do was write. I mean, so that it wasn't a, a problem, you know. And lucky me, really, to have gone on to do what I like to do. I mean, not everyone is that fortunate. No, not, not everyone is that fortunate. And I wonder, um, certainly not everyone's that successful. And um, I wondered whether you could, if it's not a secret, tell us what your writing routine is, if you have one, give an insight into the world of a write, your, your well, writing. Well, it was heavily um, marked and shaped by having six children in 10 years. And if you don't have a routine, forget it. I mean, all mothers, as it was, in those days, mothers, all mothers who achieve anything are incredibly self-disciplined, you know, in a way they just take for granted. Um, and when my children were young, I'd write in the morning when they were um, in the cradle, in the garden, at nursery school, at school, you know, and all the rest of it. They tell wicked stories, which I deny. They say there was a notice on the door saying, only come into this room if you've broken a leg, otherwise not. <laughs> I strongly deny. <laughs> but my daughter did write, uh, Natasha did do a sort of poster, which I framed, because um, it made me laugh. It said, to be put on my door, nobody allowed, spelled A-L-O-U-D, um, uh, not even you. Otherwise, um, no... Um, conversation misspelled, no pocket money, and worse of all, no mother. <laughs> <laughs> so I did grab those hours, no telephone, nothing, you know. Um, and But after that, then obviously, you know, the rest of life took over. But I mean, that I still feel odd if I sort of do nothing. I couldn't, I know this is going to sound a bit strange, but I couldn't read a novel in the morning. I'd feel, uh, I'd feel idle, yes. Um, so you, uh, having, having now published uh, your memoir, are you working on anything currently? I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do because I'm um, 
giving a lot of talks, which I enjoy, and I want to do, but I shall do something. I mean, I, I, I've always written, and I'm always going to. Um, and I think one of the things we've heard is how much you really have loved reading throughout mm. your life. And I wondered uh, which writers you think have influenced you the most? Well, I was tremendously influenced when I was young by Sir Walter Scott. I mean, he's not much read now. Uh, uh, um, my mother read him to us at first, I think doing quite a bit of cutting of the, uh, of the descriptive passages. I still think he's a great writer. Um, that was a sort of early influence. But then I read, because I was such a quick reader, I, could, I read very wisely, widely. I mean, I loved Dorothy Sayers. Um, does anyone read Dorothy Sayers now? Yeah. Um, I think they're awfully good. Um, I mean, she was the sort of um, P.D. James of her day. Um, I read a lot of detective fiction. And then history, uh, whatever was sort of... I read a book called The Grand Wiggery, which was all about Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. I always thought that I would write a book about her, and then Amanda Foreman wrote a wonderful book, so there was no need. <laughs> um, and finally, um, for any aspiring writers in our audience, uh, do you have any, any tips or advice for them? I've got one tip, um, which is because I get letters from people saying, I've always wanted to write, you write, how do I write? And I write back and say, you write. That's all it takes. It's not like acting where you've got to have a stage. You can't do it in the mirror. And so if they come back and say, yes, but I'm not a writer, I say, yes, you are. We're all writers. And I suggest people keep diaries. Um, get, uh, and it doesn't matter if you don't keep it every day. As long as you have a discipline, again, like do it on Sunday morning, you know, or Saturday night, it doesn't matter what it is, or even once a month, as long as you don't break it. And then you'll gradually find that you are writing. And it's like memory. Memories come with memory. Writing comes with writing. So the tip is to do it. doesn't matter. A friend of mine, A.S. Byatt, a very good writer, once said to me, in order to write well, you have to first of all write badly. Well, I don't believe she ever wrote badly, but I don't know. But there is something in that. I mean, writing is the same as anything else. Practice, you know. Therefore, my tip would be, or to... Um, children or mothers or fathers, write and try a diary to give it a form. Yeah. Or try describing, even if you don't do it as a diary, but describing an outing you made or a play or something. Just get yourself in the mood. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.